I'm so glad to be here with you guys today. Um, my family and I serve in the country of Albania, and unfortunately, the best part of me could not join me today. So I think I have a picture of my family. Yes, that was taken the other day. Aren't they the cutest kids you've ever seen? I mean, really, I just, they just melt my heart. So uh, we live in the country of Albania. For those of you who don't know, Albania mentally pictured... Italy and Greece and sandwiched in the middle of those two countries is a small country that most people know nothing about. I knew very little about it when we first heard about it. And if there's one thing today that I hope you walk out the doors when you hear the word Albania, it's that you would remember and never forget that less than 1% of people in Albania know Christ. Less than 1%. So let's make this real. If we're in Albania right now, maybe there's one person in this room that knows Christ. And that just is a number that has absolutely changed my life. We moved six and a half years ago to a city called Pogradets. And you could think polka dots, right? And polka dots. Uh, Pogradets is a city on the border of Macedonia and Albania. It's a large uh, population of Muslims, and we moved there to help plant a church. And over the last few years, God has taken uh, a handful of young, smoking, swearing, fighting teenage boys and turned that group into a church plant of about um, 150 people that come through some sort of ministry in our church. And so we've seen people be saved. And I, I mean, I hope that's an encouragement to you as you sit there. Albanians, less than 1%, are being saved right now. And we've gathered uh, together every week children, high school, elderly people, poor people, poorer people, sitting together to worship and grow and be the church. Now, when I look back at the last few years, I am just amazed. At what God has done. Uh, and you should know about me. I'm someone that never wanted to do ministry growing up. I, I never had met a missionary. Uh, growing up, I just never did. Uh, it wasn't in my DNA. But when I heard that less than 1% of people in Albania know Christ, it struck me. And, and the moment I heard it, I never stopped pursuing going to Albania. And one day, after praying and asking God, do you want us to go? My, my wife and my six-month-year-old daughter stepped off a plane, and we thought, what have we done? We live here now. And so over the past six and a half years, you know, we've, we've gone through some major trials. We've had to learn language. We've had to learn culture, all that fun stuff. But there's been some major trials as well. And, I mean, those are things we knew. You know when you're going to be a missionary. You know the cost. You know what it means. You're not going to have Target. You're not going to have Costco. And those are actually big deals sometimes. Bigger than that, though, is, okay, we're going to live in a faraway country. Our friends won't be there. Our families won't be there. That's a big cost. But, you know, we'd miss weddings. We'd miss funerals. Our kids would see their grandparents maybe once a year. Cousins, hopefully, Harder than that is, you know, loneliness, culture shock. And over time, you know, we, we accepted the reality. We might be kind of weird. Missionaries can be kind of weird sometimes. And their kids can be kind of, you know. So we had to think through that. Count the cost. You know what I didn't put on the list, though? Global pandemic. 
Didn't think through that one. 2020. I, I mean, I, I want to just share about the last year of what happened in Albania. Early last March, my family and I drove across the border to Greece. And as we came home, we were notified that we needed to be quarantined for two weeks. And we thought, oh, this will be fun. You know, we have four kids. We're going to be home. We'll just have, like, themed nights. So we did Christmas night, dress-up night, spy night. And that was only (laughs) two weeks. Uh, But then the whole country locked down. And we were stuck in our home. My wife and kids did not leave the house for 54 days. So that was fun. Um, I could only go outside to get groceries, and I had to have a permit, and I had one hour. And, you know, you, you bring home groceries, and you're wiping them down with hand sanitizer, and you're like, is this the new normal? Uh, is, and we're close to Italy, you know, I don't know if you saw the news about Italy. We thought, oh my goodness, thousands are dying, I think. Is that what's really going on? So we had to make a choice. Do we leave Albania, or do we stay? And the bottom line, we stayed because we believed we probably were going to be burying people. That was what we thought was going to happen. And so two weeks turned into 50 days. And during that time, our ministry obviously changed. Uh, For Albania, a country quarantine meant the vast majority were out of work. So they were going to run out of money, which means they were going to run out of food. So families would struggle. And we knew that this would also bring a horrible time of... um, drunkenness and abuse and stress and we did our best to help our church uh, was able to provide boxes of food for families hundreds of americans donated so that they could feed a family of five for a week for 30 dollars and thousands of people were fed during this quarantine time so it's i mean i'm sure all of you can count the many blessings that god has done in the midst of a pandemic can't we all do that And say, man, God gave us opportunities we never would have had before. But personally, for me, it's been a hard year. I'm a planner. I'm social. I'm relational. And I watched our calendar get wiped clean, like many of you. And I was bummed. You know, we often have teams that come from churches in America to serve with us. And we have camps with hundreds of people in close proximity And, obviously, here's the word of the year, it was all canceled. Canceled. So in June, last June, our church was able to meet again, and we had, you know, restrictions, limitations. You've been through this as well. But at the end of August, I knew we need a break. And so the only country we could come to was America and the whole world. And so we came home just for two weeks to spend some time with family looking for a break, and it was during this time we learned that my dad has cancer, and that was about it for me. I was like, I think that's as much as I can handle. He has a type of blood cancer. He just finished chemo. He's doing very well. But if I have to think over the last year, it's kind of like you're drowning, and, you know, someone drops a boulder on you again, and it's been hard. And, and as I think about our Christian life, and I hope I can stand before you today and tell you, I am only here to encourage you in your faith. And as I think of the past year, our Christian life is a race. It's a race. And it kind of feels like, you know, you're on a hill, you're out of breath, you're running barefoot in the sun, and I'm just scared on what's 
the other, on, on what's on the other side. And as I've talked to people, I know it's not just me. I know it's a lot of us. Everything has changed, and we've been through a difficult year. Many Christians haven't been to church. Many bailed a long time ago watching sermons online. Fellowship on Zoom and Facebook and Instagram. It just doesn't cut it. And so it, the Christian life is a race. And we can't forget that. It's, it's not a sprint. It's a never-ending marathon. And in a modern marathon, you know, you, if some of you have done this, as you're running, you pass these stations where they, they hand you water. And if 2020 is, you know, a race, you're running in the heat. There's forest fires all over the West Coast. You can't breathe. Your shoes fell apart. And every time you think, okay, there's a water station, it's just a group of protesters, right? It's just been nuts. So, do you think some have fallen away from the faith this year? Maybe you know some. Were you ready for this? This is a time, and you know this, when many people will no longer pursue Jesus Christ. Many people are going to drop out. One pastor I know who's been a pastor for decades said, this is the first time I thought, I'm done. He didn't quit, but I know that feeling of despair. I hit it too. I'm done. Many will fall away in the faith. Others will give in to sin. And the last year will be a year when sin won for many people. Broken families, broken marriages, abuse, isolation, drunkenness, and despair. So how are we, the church, going to survive? And we've all been thinking through this. How can we survive this trial? And how can we help others survive? So I have found great comfort in the Word of God. That's been it for me. If the Bible is God's word, then it's true. And at a time where it's difficult to know what is true, aren't we thankful that we possess the truth of God in our hands? The book of Hebrews is a massive encouragement for me and for us today. So if you are sitting here discouraged, I hope I can encourage you. And my hope and goal for today is that you walk out the doors with bolder faith than you've ever had unstoppable hope that you have endurance to continue and run the race well. So go ahead and turn your Bible to the book of Hebrews. 13 chapters. It's not a very long book. It's 45 minutes to read. But this is a unique book in the New Testament. And I hope you can each hold one in your hand and use that as we walk through this passage today. One of the reasons this is a unique book is... We don't actually know who wrote it. And we can, can we just stop and say, that's really interesting. We don't know who wrote this. The author, the person speaking, chose not to use their name. And the author was so closely connected to the apostles, but has a style different than, in writing than all of them. The other apostles who wrote books of the New Testament always had a specific audience in mind. Paul makes it easy. He says, to the church of Corinth, to the church of Ephesus to the church in Rome, James, Peter, John, and Jude wrote to believers in all locations. And they wrote shorter letters that were, you know, easily copied, that could be spread out quickly. But the author of Hebrews is so different. The audience in mind is a Jewish audience. People familiar with the Old Testament, but likely not the church of Jerusalem. And it's likely decades after the day of Pentecost. So it could have been Jews who were taught by the apostles themselves. 
And the author unpacks some of the richest theology in the Bible for three different groups of Jewish people. And this is so important. He's writing first to Jewish believers. Those who formerly lived under the Jewish law, but now had faith in Jesus as their Messiah, as the Son of God and Savior. He also writes to Jewish unbelievers who were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, but were unwilling to commit spiritually. They knew the message of Jesus was true, but would not live in faith. They would not surrender. They would not commit. And he finally writes to the Jewish unbelievers who were not convinced Jesus was the Messiah. They intellectually did not believe and were unconvinced. They reject the gospel. They oppose this new movement of Christianity. So you have to bear in mind these three groups. Believers, those who are convinced. Unbelievers who were convinced but unwilling to surrender their lives. And unbelievers, unconvinced and so also unwilling to surrender their lives. And the author addresses all three throughout this book. And he even identifies himself with them at times. And so we have to pay careful attention not only to what is said, but who it is being said to. The author wants these people to understand that Christ is better. Christ is the supreme high priest. He's more supreme than angels. He brings a better way than Moses. He has a greater priest in the order of Melchizedek. He brings a better covenant, a better sacrifice. The word better is used 13 times to describe what Jesus does. He is better. Christ is our high priest. And so the author presents all this wonderful theology. But he also gives six intense warnings. Super intense. And if you were to read Hebrews, you would easily identify them. Why? Because they're really strong and really direct. And you know what a warning is, right? Uh, a warning is information that comes before a threat. My family and I drove down the coast, the west coast this last August. It was amazing. And you know what we noticed at that time of year? I mean, it was election time. It was construction everywhere. We saw signs everywhere we went. That's something that is pretty unique to America. Signs. Um, when I come back, I'm overwhelmed with how much I'm reading as I'm driving. And you know what? The, the, the ones that actually matter, they're orange. right? They say, construction ahead. Bump ahead and ready for it. Falling rocks ahead. Deer ahead. And you see, I appreciate that because I live in Albania. We don't have those. So, yeah, you fly into construction. You hit the bump. The rock hits you. You kill the deer. So warnings are a good thing, but sometimes they're hard. And today we're going to look at the greatest warning in the book of Hebrews. Go to chapter 10 with me. Hebrews chapter 10. And after building a case for the supremacy of Christ as our eternal high priest, he urges believers to hold fast to their faith, to love one another, to do good works. But there's a warning. And the author identifies himself with the second group, those who accepted the gospel of Jesus to be true, but had not yet surrendered their lives to that truth. And he has a warning for them. In verse 26 and 27, he says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now make sure you read that well and understand what he's saying. This is a warning against what is called apostasy. 
Apostasy, it's a church word that means to forsake, abandon, and leave behind or turn away. And Hebrews 6 says something similar. He says in verse uh, 6, 4 to 6, he says, For in the case of those who've once been enlightened, have tasted of the heavenly gift, have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified themselves, the Son of God, and put him to open shame. Now, this is weird. There are those who intellectually understand and are enlightened to have knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they reject it. This is beyond comprehending what the gospel is. This is acceptance that the gospel is true, and I reject that truth. They learn the great sacrifice of Jesus, and they reject it. And so, what remains for them? Nothing. There's no longer a sacrifice for their sins, since they rejected the one which God provided. They are apostate. And what is their end? It tells us in verse 31 of chapter 10. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that brings us to our passage today. We're going to slow down and focus on verse 32 to 39. And to make it simple, this passage gives us an exhortation for the believers. And let's be clear, he doesn't know with absolute certainty where each person is at spiritually. But he speaks to the whole congregation and allows the message to penetrate where it can. Every congregation has believers and unbelievers in it. And those most in danger are unbelievers. This is so important. Unbelievers who believe they're saved. Or believe it's enough to understand the gospel and yet continue in sin. Continue to live in rejection of that truth. It's the same in this room. I don't know where each of you are at. I don't know where you stand with God today. Some in this room are believers. Some may believe they are believers, but they are in danger. And so as we hear these exhortations, I hope each of you would consider yourself and realize this is for you. So this author, without skipping a beat, turns from speaking about the apostate to address unbelievers who intellectually understand and yet have not surrendered their lives this group had come to full knowledge of the gospel and now simply need to die to themselves and follow Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I'm sure as he penned this, he did have particular people in mind. These are people, these people were on their way toward true belief, but not yet believed. Why were they part of this congregation? Maybe they were curious about who Jesus was. Maybe they loved the fellowship, the community. Maybe they had a great youth group. A fun men's event coming up. Or their children ministry it really affected the family. We don't know why these unbelievers were part of the congregation, but the author is concerned for them. At this point, the author would have worried that they were like the seed that fell upon the rocks, whose faith sprouted quickly, but because they had no depth of soil, the sun was going to rise and scorch them. And so this is his plea. This is the author calling the people who are on the edge of salvation to endure. So he speaks to those who need to let the gospel take root. To those who need true salvation. And they're so close. They're so close. But they're missing one thing. And this is what he says to them. Verse 32. 
But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. After a warning against rejecting Christ, he says, remember, recall, remind yourself. And this is not something new in the Bible. The entire Bible is consistently calling God's people to remember. Why? Because we forget. We have to work to remember. And all of mankind is just bad at remembering. For the Israelites, it's the Passover. It was memorial stones. It was festivals and rituals. And so they would not forget the Lord, their God who brought them out of Egypt. Israel, as we know, did not remember. This is why God declares over and over, you did not remember. You have forgotten. Isaiah 17.10, he says, for you have forgotten the God of your salvation. You have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Isaiah 51, 13, that you have forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens. Jeremiah 3, 21, you have, they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord, their God. Ezekiel 16, 43, because you have not remembered the days of your youth, but have enraged me by all these things. Behold, I in turn will bring your conduct down on your head, declares the Lord. Remembering is important. So as we see this command for those unbelievers who are on the edge... Do not take it lightly. There's great danger for those who forget. And so the author tells this group, remember, recall to mind, reconstruct in your mind the former days. So what happened in the former days? These people, as we see, were enlightened. They'd been exposed to the gospel. They understood the gospel. They intellectually recognized that it's true. But they also went through a time of persecution The author expresses this in three ways. He says they went through suffering, reproaches, and tribulations. Some went through public shaming. And these unbelievers had already suffered and had not quit. But many Christians that we know are openly, not many Christians we know are openly persecuted today, right? But these non-Christians, imagine this, stood with the church in their sufferings. They cared for the believers that were in prison. And even associated with the church, they had their homes plundered and destroyed. Now let's just wait a minute. The author tells them to remember the former days. And you would think that these are sweet memories, right? Remember the glory days? But these are some bad times. Times of suffering, persecution, injustice and imprisonment and plundering. Often when people need encouragement or inspiration to keep going, they talk about the good times in the past. Not days of suffering, right? The married couple who recalls the early days of dating. Remember those days, honey? It was so exciting, right? The parents of challenging teenagers who recall how, like, innocent and sweet their child was when they were little. Athletes who remember the former days of glory. The early days of a new business. Lots of good times in the early days. So why in the world is the author telling them to remember times of suffering and persecution? And it's because it was then these unbelievers were so close to salvation. So close. 
Let me read verse 34. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you yourselves, that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. In their days of suffering, they didn't care. They knew what God's promises were. Even in persecution and public shame, jail, or having their homes destroyed, they knew and understood God's promises. They even rejoiced in God's promises. They even suffered for God's promises. And yet they failed, what? To do the will of God. And so they did not have the reward. They did not yet possess the promise. Why? They're lacking the one thing needed. How can one know and understand the gospel, suffer for the gospel, participate in the gospel, and yet not have salvation in the gospel? Well, he tells us, verse 37, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. They lacked one thing, the only thing that matters, faith. Something had caused these people who were previously a part of the church, in fellowship, in compassion, in suffering, to shrink back, to fall back. Now, that verse is, is likely not a new verse for you. Uh, Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. Galatians 3.11, Now that no one is... No one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous men shall live by faith. Paul's used this verse before. But the author of Hebrews gives us more. This famous New Testament quote is from Habakkuk chapter 2. And let me just read what Habakkuk wrote. This is chapter 2. He says, For it will certainly come, it will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith. The righteous live by faith. It is continuous faith. Faith becomes life. The righteous didn't live by faith once at camp when they were young. The righteous didn't live by faith once a, work at, uh, once a week at church. The righteous didn't live by faith only when it was easy or only when it's hard. The righteous continually and dependently live by faith every day, every moment. Now, if you're paying attention, you're going to notice this sounds a little different than what the author of Hebrews said. Habakkuk says, the proud one, his soul is not right within him. But Hebrews says, if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So to me, that's, that's a pretty loose translation. It makes me think, well, which is it? The one who is prideful or the one who shrinks back? So I'm going to ask you to, ready? Let's flip to Habakkuk chapter 2. That's a challenge. I'm sorry. Good luck. It's in the middle. Habakkuk chapter 2. And I'll give you some context while you find it. Because it's kind of hard. Uh, we probably don't know much about this prophet. He's a minor prophet. He only wrote three chapters. And just to give you some background, he's a prophet who is angry. As he lives during the darkest days of Israel's sin. And he writes his conversation with God. 
He doesn't have a message for the people. It's just him and God talking. Habakkuk observes the nation of Israel and he says, God, your people have abandoned your law. And the result is sin and injustice and they have forgotten. How long, O Lord? And God answers him and says, don't worry, Habakkuk, I'm going to raise up Babylon. They'll come, they will destroy the nation of Israel, and this will be their judgment. Now, this is not what Habakkuk wants to hear. Babylon? Really? Babylon. How can God discipline the unrighteous by using a people who are more unrighteous? How can God allow this? And Habakkuk makes it super clear. He does not like God's plan. And so stick with me as I walk through these verses. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart. And I'll keep watch to see what he will speak to me. The prophet is confused. He's discouraged and wants answers. And so he goes up to the tower. And this is a watchtower. It's a, it's a place of safety. It's a place of defense. It's a high place. Probably the highest place in the city. And he raises himself up as close as he can get to God. And he says, I'm waiting right here until I get an answer. And then God answers in verse 2. It's kind of scary. He says, Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. Meaning... You want answers? Get your pen out. You better write it down. And then you better read it and run for your life. Verse 3. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it will certainly come. It will not delay. And God is speaking of his judgment. Meaning, my judgment is coming. At the exact time I have appointed. Which is the best time for it to come. And nothing can stop it from coming. And this is where we get our famous verse, verse 4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith. So guess what, Habakkuk? There's two types of people in the world. There are the proud and there are the righteous. Now what does proud mean? It means raised up. It means exalted. It means, it means arrogant and puffed up. And where's Habakkuk? That's right, he's in the highest tower he can get in. He's exalted himself into a position to say directly to God, I don't like your plan. And there must have been this moment of shame as he realized the proud cannot please God. The author of Hebrews likely translated this verse from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew text. And it reads like this. This is interesting. For he will surely come and will not tarry. If he should draw back, my soul has no pleasure in him, but the just shall live by faith. Hebrews then intends to build on this idea in order to draw the audience to examine the words of Habakkuk. But the one who draws back, the one who shrinks back, does so by his inability to believe in God. So there are two people in the world. The righteous who live by faith and the one who hides away. He fearfully takes a step backward. And he says, I don't like your plan. I don't like your timing. I don't want this. He therefore renounces the authority of God. And rather than trusting in the authority of God, he trusts in himself. And he, he literally makes himself a fortress. He's lost to his own pride. And so the one who is proud cannot please God. 
God said in Isaiah 13, Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the arrogance of the proud because the proud draw back from the authority of God and find safety in their own strength. And that becomes their high tower. But God wasn't finished explaining himself to the angry prophet. The Lord continued to explain his sovereignty and his justice and his holiness. None of his glory would be minimized or compromised by the sinful nations. His holiness will stand forever. And his last words to the prophet are, Let the, let the earth be silent before me. Who are you, O men, to question God? Habakkuk responds, not in anger, not in resentment, but in absolute worship. And he ends his prayer with these words, 3.18. Yet I will exult in the Lord, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hinds feet. And listen to this, and he makes me walk on high places. Somewhere in there, Habakkuk surrendered. Beginning of chapter 2, he climbs to the tower to argue with God. It's a man-made tower. At the end of chapter 3, he's glorifying God, the God who saved, the God alone who reigns, who raises the faithful to high places. And he exalts the faithful. He lifts up the faithful. With their faith, men cannot endure suffering and trials, but faith lets you climb victoriously on God-made mountains. And it's with all these thoughts and these lessons in mind that the author of Hebrews turns his attention to the believers. Now go back to Hebrews 10 and find verse 39. And he identifies both with those who will believe and those who already do. And this is what he says. Hebrews 10, 39. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So two people, those who shrink back and those who have faith. And we, he says, are not of those who shrink back. We don't. We don't draw back. We don't retreat because we have no fear. Those who shrink back only do so because they're afraid. And they pause. They hesitate. Which often results in devastating failure. Now maybe some of you have Instagram I know you know what that is. One of my favorite Instagram accounts is called Kook Slams. And if you know what that is, it's fake. Um, it's these short videos of people doing like e extreme sports, surfing, uh, diving, jumping off cliffs, and just wiping out. Uh, and my favorite ones are the jumpers, right? And it, it could be a cliff or a bridge or a rock, a tree, whatever. But these people get the strength, the guts, to jump off something high into the water, and it's the best falls. Uh, but they all fall for the same reason. They hesitate. They hold back. They draw back. And if you're going to jump off the cliff, you better be all in. Because one hesitation, and you're going to barrel down, and someone's going to film it, and I will laugh about it. And so, I'm sure, would many of you. But they're the, that's, a, that's a good image of what it means to shrink back. And so he tells the believers this truth. We do not hold back. We do not hesitate. We don't withdraw. Because it leads to what? Destruction. 
But we are those who have faith, which leads to what? The preservation of their souls. This is about eternal life and death, heaven and hell, destruction and salvation. And the one who has faith is saved. And so the clearest, most obvious question we have to ask is, what is faith? And praise God, the author of Hebrews tells us in the very next verse. Hebrews 11.1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. True faith in the Lord Jesus Christ gives you assurance and security in the things hoped for. And what are those things? Salvation of your soul, eternity in heaven, the fulfillment of all of God's promises to his children. And true faith gives you conviction of things you've never seen. You've never seen God. You've never seen Christ. You have never seen the Holy Spirit. You have never seen heaven. And yet everything you do is a result of your conviction that those things are true. You're under the Lord. You've surrendered to him. And so you have no fear. For you live today for the eternity to come. We do not shrink back to destruction, but we have faith that endures and perseveres. Hebrews chapter 11, as we know, lists the Old Testament examples of faith. And we don't have time to mention them, but beyond the Old Testament, we, ex- we have today the examples of the New Testament. Faith lived in people like Paul and John and Peter and Mary. And throughout the history of the church, we have faithful saints who have run before us. How many before us have lived in faith? battled in faith, and been killed for their faith. We are surrounded by these examples. And it's this we find the climax in Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of what? Faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let me conclude by addressing you. Like I said, I don't know where you're at with the Lord today. But after studying this passage together, I hope you can better identify where you are. I hope you're sure. I hope you have clarity. First, to those of you who think, I'm close, but I haven't yet surrendered You're sure, you're not sure if you have true faith in Christ. Let me tell you, today is the day. You have to surrender today. You know the truth, you understand, and you sit in here today and you would be foolish to walk out the door believing tomorrow's a better day. Jesus said in Luke 9, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he's the one who will save it. So deny yourself. Follow him. And today you have been warned and cannot delay. Would you give up anything that is holding you back and surrender to him? Jesus does not want you to be good enough. Can't we praise him for that? He does not want you to prove yourself. He doesn't want you to do your best. He wants you to surrender your life and become a radical, devoted, unshakable believer in the Lord Jesus. And lastly, to you believers, 
I want you to read this verse one more time, 1039. I mean, highlight that. Put that somewhere important. We are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Now, this sentence is in the indicative mood. So what does that mean? Well, here's what it doesn't say. The author doesn't say, don't shrink back. He doesn't say, you shouldn't shrink back. If you shrink back, he says, we do not shrink back. In regard to faith, it's the same. He doesn't say, try to have faith, keep the faith, good luck with your faith. No, he says, we are those who have faith. And for the Christian, this is a fact. This verse is about who we are. It's about our identity. My oldest daughter, Shiloh, this last summer got the chance to wakeboard for the first time. And we're in the water, and she's trying to get up, and then she keeps falling, and it's been a few tries, and I can tell she's starting to get that look like, I don't want to do this anymore, you know. And I, I could take five minutes while we're floating in the water and explain the importance of not quitting, uh, working hard. But rather, I look at my daughter and I say, Shiloh, we don't quit. Kramers don't quit. <laughs> I don't know why, but she sucked it up and she got right up. Christians, we don't quit. We don't fall back. We don't hesitate. But we have faith. Like the apostles, we can say, right, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed. Oh boy, have I been perplexed but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, not destroyed. I know some in this room have thought, well, that was Paul. I'm not, a, I'm not an apostle. I'm not a church planter. I'm not a missionary. I'm not a pastor. And if that's what you think, you're missing it. This is our identity. Because of God's love, we are chosen. Ephesians 5.1. Because of God's grace, we are saved Ephesians 2.8, because of Jesus we are redeemed. Hebrews 9.15, because of Jesus we are justified. 2 Corinthians 6.11, because of the Holy Spirit we are sanctified. Titus 3.5, because of the Holy Spirit we are guaranteed for salvation. 1 Corinthians 2, because of this we are citizens in heaven. Philippians 3.20, and because of all these things we do not lose heart. 2 Corinthians 14, we do not shrink back in fear. We do not hesitate to trust. We do not second guess what God is doing. We have faith. We stand on the rock of salvation. And we can shout from the rooftops as we press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. We do not quit. Over a hundred years ago, this poem was found on the desk of a pastor in Zimbabwe who was murdered. And you may have heard it, but let me end with this incredible statement. Of who you are. He wrote, I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of his. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished with low living, sight walking, Small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. 
I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudity, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on his presence, walk by patience, and am uplifted by prayer and labor by power. My pace is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way rough, my companions few. My guide is reliable, my mission is clear, I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the adversary, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder in the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till all know, and work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he'll have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. Christian, that is who you are. What a time to recognize who we are. And it's only by fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ that we can continue to run the race. We don't quit. He gives you the endurance you need for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, and now he is seated at the right hand of God. That's the finish line. Run toward your Savior. Let's pray. Jesus, we stand as faithful people looking to a great Savior. We need encouragement. We need help. We need to be focused. I'm sure there's been a multitude of questions and prayers from this congregation to you about what is going on. But we are so thankful that we have truth, that we have a rock that we can stand on. We ask that you would continue to give us endurance to remember the person you have made us in Christ that you would look at us and see faithful people. Bless this church and thank you that your church will stand no matter what happens. Amen.